Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Dr. Denise Cummins, research psychologist and cognitive scientist. We talk about fairness in economics, or perhaps the lack of it, as well as rational choice and altruism. Denise also explains how the ultimatum game can teach us about decision-making and fairness. You can check out all the show notes, links and resources mentioned in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash Denise Cummins. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email, and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. Ayn Rand hated altruism. Uh, she thought altruism was just exploitation, self-sacrifice, and that there was no reason why anyone should ever do that unless it brought them some kind of perverse sort of pleasure. Hi, Frank Comber here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Denise Cummins join me today. Hi, Denise. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Dr. Denise Cummins is a research psychologist and an author. She has held faculty and research positions at Yale University, the University of California, the University of Illinois, and the Center for Adaptive Behavior at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. Dr. Cummins is a respected cognitive scientist who has authored numerous scientific articles and is an elected fellow of the Association for Psychological Science. In her Psychology Today blog and PBS NewsHour articles, Denise writes about what she and other cognitive scientists are discovering about the way people think, solve problems, and make decisions. Denise's experimental investigations focus on social, moral, and causal decision-making. The aim of her social research is investigating how perceived relative status impacts fairness in economic transactions. Denise is the author of four books, the most recent being Good Thinking, Seven Powerful Ideas That Influence the Way We Think. And you can find Dr. Cummins' work on her website, denisecummins.com and psychologytoday.com. Denise, we've had a bit of communication through email, and it was mostly based on your feedback and suggestions on some of the previous episodes that I have had on the show. And I so welcome some of this type of feedback. And I, I love having it so that it actually opens my mind and thinking even further, especially if it's coming from a different angle. And I had to ask you onto the show, invite you onto the show, especially you've been a psychologist, a research psychologist and a cognitive scientist. And this is something that is has been somewhat lacking in economics, but is taking on a, a large role in terms of especially the behavioral aspects. So um, could I ask you if you have backgrounds in economics or finance, because you seem to work through that type of area lately. Yes, I became interested. Uh, well, I've, I've uh, studied uh, decision making, human decision making for you know several decades, but in the last oh, about 15 years or so, I became interested in economic decision making. Um, I think the idea of um, you know kind of an invisible hand of the market that you can individual differences in decision making or any human factors that enter into it can will simply be in the denominator of you know the variance that we can we can safely uh, abstract away is probably a mistake. Uh, I think the fact that Daniel Kahneman and uh, posthumously uh, Amos Tversky won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, for prospect theory, which does take into consideration certain aspects of uh, of human decision making, is important. 
So I've, in terms of uh, my background in, of education, in my, my education is in cognitive sciences, particularly experimental psychology. I have read quite a bit in behavioral economics, though. And prior to going to graduate school, um, I worked as a financial analyst for um, a large bank in the Midwest, Midwestern part of the United States. So I'm sort of familiar with the way things work in the finance industry as, uh, and kind of self-educated about behavioral economics. And this whole area of decision-making, I suppose it's, it's quite prominent in economics and economic theory. But what has been pretty much um, largely absent is the whole concept of fairness. And this is something you're investigating lately, as I mentioned in the introduction, that you study the social, behavior, social impact of fairness in economic transactions. Yes. And I, I, I think it's John Maynard Keynes briefly wrote about fairness in his book, The General Theory. But it was largely ignored until recently when George Akerlof and Schiller introduced this whole idea of fairness in their book, Animal Spirits. Um, where do you come from in terms of this, especially being a psych- research psychologist too? Well, my interest in this came, again, from the idea that if you if you read the behavioral economic, uh, the experimental economics uh, literature, you see that people are doing a lot of things that seem to depart quite substantially from rational choice theory. Okay, they, we we simply don't behave the way economists say a rational agent should behave in these economic transactions, such as uh, ones that are based on prisoner's dilemma or the ultimatum game or the dictator game. And the question is why? Are we just poor decision makers or is there something else going on? People seem to come to the table, even in these very contrived economic transactions where there's, you know, oftentimes people, they're anonymous, uh, you know, very, you know, know anything about the person across from the table. Even under those circumstances, we seem to come into these transactions with a metric of fairness. And it, and we judge uh, we make decisions about whether to accept or reject or cooperate or defect in these tasks based on how far the other person's behavior departs from these internal met- uh, metrics of fairness. And so my question then became, well, where did this come from? You know, investigating it a little bit more closely, what does it look like and where did it come from? So I think one of the things that we have to take into consideration is that humans have a very long evolutionary history. Uh, we spent most of our, our lifetimes in small groups. And as a result, some people immediately, as soon as they hear evolution, they say, oh, it's a just-so story, but I don't think you need to go there. I think we can look comparatively and we can look at small-scale societies to ask questions uh, concerning our predilections when it comes to economic transactions. And what is clear is that a lot of uh, the reasons why we make these decisions is not simply out of self-interest, but also other regarding. So we're looking oftentimes for win-win situations, or we're looking for outcomes that benefit not just ourselves in the short term, but in the long term may have greater payoffs for ourselves. So, I think uh, I can talk a little bit about, uh, I definitely want to, I, I will tell you some of the work that I've done on Noblesse Oblige with yeah. some of my colleagues, uh, but as kind of a lead into uh, to that, let me just talk a little bit about some of the other work that is, that's been done by other people in, um, in other labs. There was a very interesting uh, paper published in 2005 
by uh, Henrik Boyd Bowles, uh, Kammerer, and, and, and many, many other people, because it was a cross-cultural study on social decision-making among 15 small-scale horticultural foraging and pastoral cultures in Africa, South America, and Asia. And the question was, uh, they, they had them uh, play games like Prisoner's Dilemma, Ultimatum, Dictator, and took a look at the patterns of responses that they made. And again, a cornerstone of economic theory is that rational agents are self-interested and when making choices about allocations of resources, we should make choices that maximize benefits to ourselves. But that isn't what they found. In fact, this model failed to a large degree in all of the societies that they studied. For example, in the ultimatum game, and should I explain what that is or should I assume? I've heard of it, but I don't know what the ultimatum game is. Is it a kind of a quiz? Yeah, in the ultimate game, what you do is there's you, there's a pile of resources. So, you know, you put, uh, so like in America, you, you'd say there's a hundred bucks on the table. And in the dictator game, you assign one party the role of the dictator. And you say, how should we divide this? You're welcome to do whatever you want. You could keep it all, you could give it all away or anything in between. And under those circumstances, what people do in large scale societies like our own, you know, America, you know, Western Europe and so on, what uh, what industrialized societies do, uh, the people come in and they will offer a substantial uh, share of that money okay, to the other person. It's somewhere usually between 30 and 40 dollars. Now, again, a rational agent should simply keep all of the money to themselves, but people don't do that. It's a very strong bias. In the ultimatum game, it's a little bit trickier, which is that one person is a proposer and the other is the responder. So the proposer proposes how the money should be split, and the responder can either accept the division or reject it. If it's accepted, well, fine, then we divide the money as proposed. If it's rejected, on the other hand, nobody gets any money, okay? The money stays on the table. Now, Uh, Again, in large-scale societies, what people do is pretty much offer close to 50%, okay, because I know that you know, you know, that we both have this shared metric that that you are likely to walk if I offer you too little. And what is too little, what's a fair distribution is, in most people's mind, is close to 50-50 split. So people will offer, you know, again, somewhere between 30 and $40, a little bit closer, a little bit higher, actually, for the ultimatum game, uh, so that you don't, uh, they don't go home, you know, empty-handed. This has been done even in cultures where, for example, after the fall of the Soviet Union, in countries where resources were scarce. And so what could be on the table is equivalent to a month's salary, and nonetheless, anything, uh, anything that departed too substantially from 50%, people walked, okay, rather than accept it. Now, that's pretty striking. What these researchers who looked at these small-scale uh, small scale traditional societies found was very much the same thing. The, uh, oftentimes, these people would offer half or sometimes even more than half, but they would reject small offers, but they would also reject offers that were too large, So the authors interpreted the pattern of behavior as a reflection of status-seeking through gift-giving, which is very common through Melanesia. Um, In these societies, accepting gifts implies a strong obligation to reciprocate, and reciprocation often takes the form of political alliances in order to have power within the community. So when you're making these economic transactions, you're doing more than just passing money back and forth. You're trafficking in these 
cognitive concepts of reciprocity, fairness, inequity aversion, uh, status seeking. These are the things that get triggered. And it's in through the lens of these cognitive concepts that the decisions, the economic decisions are being made. On the surface of it, you may say people are being irrational. But if you look at it through the lens of those factors, they're in fact not. So, for example, in evolutionary biology, uh, in 72, it was either 71 or 72, Robert Trivers wrote a seminal paper called Reciprocal Altruism. So the idea is, how do you survive out there in, in, in the wild? Well, evolution basically goes forward through differential reproductive success. Those individuals who have traits that allow them to, succeed or, uh, to survive longer and better usually leave more living offspring. Their genes stay within the population. So all of your efforts should be aimed towards your genes, right? Propagating your genes and, su- and supporting your own survival and your own reproductive success. That's what you should be investing in is your own reproductive success. Now, the thing is that nature is replete with cooperation between individuals, um, both within the same species and across species. And so that cooperation is a problem for selfish gene theory or anything that, that says animals are out there basically just trying to maximize their own reproductive success. And what Trevor showed was that you can, there's a trade-off to be made. That is, you can give up, you can help another individual. That is, you can invest in another individual, impose a cost on yourself in order to benefit another individual, which is called altruism. Okay, if there is an opportunity, if you know there's, there are going to be opportunities for future transactions in which you may that individual may reciprocate. So when you're making a decision now to be altruistic towards an individual, okay, oftentimes that is a rational choice because that reciprocation is going to come back to you. That's when kind of the way to think about it in common uh, common parlance. Okay, so that works though only if certain conditions are satisfied. Yeah. Okay. And I won't go through all of the, 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 the ones that are necessary, uh, just in terms of what the payoff matrices have to look like. But the, the important thing here is that the individuals have to be able to recognize each other and they have to exclude cheaters from all future transactions. Okay. So if I help you and you don't help me back, then I never negotiate with you again. And would that be a rational like, a decision based on what you're taking there or would that? That's- That is an evolutionarily stable strategy. That is, cooperation can, in fact, spread through a population under those conditions. Okay? So you can have altruism spreading through a population if those who do not reciprocate are excluded from future transactions. And that has been shown through modeling theory um, by a number of people, Maynard Smith, uh, as well as Trivers, and many others. Okay? That's that's kind of a fact (laughs) in evolutionary biology. Okay, so you can see how if you take a look at what people are doing in these very contrived economic transactions like the ultimatum game or, or the, um, the uh, dictator game, you can see, if you look through it through the lens of these um, evolutionary functions, you can see the impact of reciprocity. We spent most of our time in small bands. We, we recognized individuals. We exclude those who flout the social norms of reciprocity. And as a result, 
over evolutionary time, which what we now have ended up with is a cognitive bias towards fairness and towards reciprocity. So this is what, when we look at what people are doing across the, you know, across societies, even in these uh, isolated cultures that haven't had much contact with the outside world and so on, what we see almost universally is the impact of sharing fairness and uh, expectations concerning reciprocity. Can I ask you if you have come across research or you have done it yourself and looked at maybe anthropology and how we have evolved as, as humans and even in our social systems based on uh, cities and so we, we effectively have moved from small, and you refer to it, they're small tribal populations. Small, they're called small-scale societies, yeah. Small-scale societies. Yes. So um, what we w- would have had then would be maybe more of a close-knit society where almost like a village-like, whereby everybody really knows one another. And you may have the reciprocity that would be natural in terms of creating a fair society and giving back based on what people have done for you. But in larger cities where we have grown in terms of population size and people do not know one another and, you know, not even by name, would we be losing this type of altruistic behavior in say majority of time in terms of our life, unless we come across some kind of danger where we kind of automatically band or bond together? Yeah, actually, there's been a lot of uh, anthropological work on on exactly that issue and papers that have been written. And it's uh, one of the things that comes out pretty clearly is that the boundaries get pushed in large scale societies because of the anonymity. That is, in a small scale society, okay, all of my my economic transaction partners are right there. They're in front of me. I see them, and I'm going to see them tomorrow. Uh, So I. the 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 cost involved in stiffing somebody is just too high but in a large-scale society the opportunities for anonymity are much greater right there's no way that you could possibly know everybody who lives in in most you know in a city uh in a major city uh you know with with a population of of even at something as low as ten thousand. there's just no way you're going to know everybody and so the opportunities for cheating the opportunities for failure to reciprocate are quite are quite high. You can just, in fact, this is what con men do. They just skip around from town to town taking advantage of people. And the reason they can take advantage of people is because we seem to be born with these biases towards trust, towards reciprocity, towards or expectations of fairness and reciprocity. And as a result, you get your one shot usually, okay? You get your one shot to basically cheat them, and, and then you have to leave town. So again, in, um, if you look at this again through you know, uh, economic theory or through evolutionary biology, cheating in these kinds of environments is advantageous in one-shot uh, transactions. It's, uh, that's the, the rational choice. But in multiple, if there are going to be multiple opportunities for interactions, for economic transactions, and you will know those parties, you can recognize those individuals, okay, the cost for fail- for cheating, for failing to, to reciprocate is just too high because you can get shut out. You can get shut out from the game. And, you know, if you're in a small-scale society, uh, where do you go? <laughs> in a large one, you just go to the next community, right? You just, you know, you, there's, a, there's nearly an endless supply of, of people to take advantage of. 
Yeah. So we, we, you know, we see these kind of things again uh, when you bring naive reasoners into the into the lab. And by naive, I, I mean basically uh, somebody who who isn't a tried and true, you know, economic theorist uh, who knows all of this literature, even uh, sort of beginning economic students. You can bring them into the laboratory. You can have them engage in these kinds of transactions, and they will behave pretty much like someone from a small-scale society. They will come in with a bias towards trust and an expectation of fairness. And if that does not happen, <laughs> it's, it's a problem. You can have some very interesting, and if you don't have this, this mindset, if you don't know this literature and you don't know evolutionary biology, you will get behavior that seems incomprehensible. So, for example, people are willing to pay a penalty, penalty for the opportunity to punish non-reciprocators in multiple prisoner uh, dilemma games, okay? They will actually pony up money to punish someone who failed to reciprocate, even if they are observers to the game, even if they, are, they themselves were not cheated. That is how strong we have this norm, <clears throat> this embedded norm of recipro reciprocity and fairness. You mentioned the prisoner's dilemma there and any, my, uh, any student would have, especially first year, I'm sure it would have been introduced. They would have come across the prisoner's dilemma or what's also known as the Nash equilibrium, who or John Nash worked on this prisoner's dilemma aspect of it. And it's where you have maybe firms and it's been adapted to include maybe firms and explain how firms react to one another. And it's assumed that there's two type of firms, maybe oligopolists. And they have the possibility to collude with one another and they set prices based on that collusion. But if one of them, there's the incentive to cheat, because if you cheat and go against them, you can actually earn more or higher profits if you reduce your prices. And so the incentive to cheat is always there on both sides. So there's a mistrust element. And if one of them cheats, then there's pretty much no going back because that other firm will end up competing on prices and then you'll end up with a price war. And you'll end up at an equilibrium whereby the, both firms will end up less with less profits than if they had colluded or one cheated. Because if one cheats, then you take the short term gains and possible long term smaller profits if the other, uh, other firm ends up reducing their prices uh, to combat what you've just done. Right. And I, I don't know when that was introduced in economic theory, but I'm sure... As you had mentioned there, it's come through psychology, evolutionary biology, and it's possibly something that, and it's only an example, how we as economists could learn once we embrace other disciplines like psychology and biology. And I've had previous guests on this podcast, especially Herbert Gintas, who spoke about this, mm -hmm. the need to embrace other disciplines especially biology he emphasized this whole aspect of biology and psychology and the need for it yeah i think if you want to if you want to sharpen up your predictions you know what's what's going to happen it helps to know what kind of animal you're dealing with okay what kind of agent you're dealing with and what we have in psychology and in uh, behavioral economics or experimental economics is a treasure trove of information about how people behave and how they think and what their biases and expectations are. Now, with respect to prisoner's dilemma, it can be done quite simply. Uh, they've actually had, you know, taught, you know, sort of uh, game shows based on it. If you want to bring it into the into the into the laboratory with just two players, and it's just simply that uh, 
there are two players and well, the standard thing is like, you know, two people have been accused of a crime. And if one of them uh, rats out the other person, okay, they go scot-free. The other person goes to prison. That's true for each one of them. Okay. If they both stay mum, they will get convicted of a, of a lesser crime. So both of them will do some time, but, uh, but uh, far less than if one rats the other one out. Okay. And then if they both, you know, rat each other out, then they both get sent up for the maximum. Okay. Now, under those circumstances, again, the rational choice is to rat the other person out. Okay. Uh, but what most people do, again, is they don't. They stay mum. Okay. They cooperate. So your choice is always to, whether to cooperate or defect. And defection in, in one shot prisoner dilemma is always the optimal choice. Okay, but even on one shot games, when you when you play them in the laboratory, people do not play that way. They will cooperate rather than than defect. You can do this instead of with prison time in terms of payoff. Okay, in terms of uh, how much money people get. So that's what we find. And again, that was the thing that they they also found in these in these small scale societies. So uh, that was again the question of where did this very strong bias for cooperation come from? And when experimental economists began reading the evolutionary biology literature, it turns out that biologists had been struggling with these very same problems with respect to altruism and cooperation in the natural world and had come up with these very interesting um, theories and had tested them quite extensively. So, again, one-shot defection is optimal, but in multiple opportunities, okay, if you're going to play multiple prisoner dilemma games, the optimal is, in the end, is reciprocation. In 81, Axelrod and Hamilton published a uh, modeling paper in which they had, uh, there was a big tournament uh, for people came up with algorithms to see, uh, you know, which, which one would do the best in repeated prisoner dilemma type games. And the uh, tournament was won by tit for tat, which is that you start out trusting so you reciprocate on the first one. And then for every subsequent round, you do whatever it was that your partner did. So if your partner reciprocated, then uh, cooperated with you, then you co- cooperate with them on the next one. If, the, if your partner defected, you defect. And that turned out to be a remarkably powerful strategy. It won the, tur- the, the, the tournament. So, <clears throat> again, the game changes when you're going to have repeated uh, economic transactions with individuals. That's quite interesting, given that the person who, or the tip for tag game that wins, that, that won the tournament, the person who is dependent on the previous outcome or the decision being made ends up, you know, with the, the stronger outcome in terms of the cooperation or the, the, the decision made earlier on. Like, for example, as you had mentioned there, if you ended up not cooperating the next person's, the person's decision is to not cooperate also. And I don't know if that's kind of a, a fight or flight uh, t- type of instinct that we have, whether we should. Well, it comes up, it's basically you're sizing up somebody's reputation because, you know, as, as they tell you in law school, you know, a contract is only as good as the quality of the people, the character of the people who are signing it. And the same thing with re- with respect to economic transactions. This is something I think in business people are quite familiar with. 
that, you know, most businesses uh, can do, you know, you can do business on a handshake if the person on the other side of the transaction and you are people of quality, of character. So you're always, your um, reputation, right? They call this goodwill when you sell a business. Your reputation matters. And for multiple transactions with individuals, they will try, individuals will try to avoid exploitation, which means that they will avoid transactions with anybody who has a history of uh, non-reciprocation or defection in, in these kinds of um, economic transactions. Denise, you wrote a, an article called This is What Happens When You Take Ayn Rand Seriously. And you mentioned David Blanchflower, who in a recent episode on Planet Money was asked about fairness or there was some something that they were discussing and he the host asked is that fair and he said that economics is not about fairness that he wasn't going there Mm -hmm. what's your reaction to that because it obviously invoked you to write this article i wrote two of them actually um because there was there was great pushback from the ayn randites who aficionados who said that you know this was wrong and that was wrong and the other which was which it wasn't so the second article uh, the follow-up piece that i wrote for pbs basically was a little bit more scholarly written in that I, you know, I, I named chapter and verse and uh, brought a lot of data to bear on the matter. But yeah, economists think that fairness is just not an issue. And Ayn Rand hated altruism. Uh, she thought altruism was just exploitation, self-sacrifice, and that there was no reason why anyone should ever do that unless it brought them some kind of perverse sort of pleasure. And there's a number of other things that you know I, t- I discuss in that article. Uh, the thing to keep in mind is that Alan Greenspan is a great devotee of Ayn Rand, close friends, and actually was a uh, – he wrote the introduction to um, uh, one of the reissues of Ayn Rand's collections of papers. Um, when was that? About 20 years ago, I think, something like that. Um, and it's thinking like that that has brought us the economic <laughs> situation that we're in today. Okay, when we only think in terms of the short term, in terms of uh, taking the most cash off the table now, regardless of the impact that it may have down the road uh, for not just, you know, ourselves, but for the numerous others who are impacted by it, we end up with the kinds of economic meltdowns that we go into. People will say that the market will correct itself, but keep in mind that a correction in the market <laughs> takes the, uh, the, sh- the, the form of people being out of work, of people losing their homes, of bankruptcies across the board, of entire institutions, uh, such as savings and loan organizations, simply going belly up. That's a correction in the market. It's definitely a correction. That's the kind of wild swing that regulation is supposed to prevent. That is what, throughout human history, uh, what small-scale societies and increasingly larger industrialized societies have tried to take steps to avoid. That is to to produce some kind of stability so that you don't have these booms and busts, so that there's a a degree of communal contribution to a a social safety net, okay, in times of busts. So, yeah, when people talk about the market correcting itself, I think you have to put a human face on that, what that means. We still have not uh, recovered from the economic downturn from eight years ago that was ushered in by people who were devotees of uh, people like Ayn Rand. Since the financial crisis, I'm sure the the gap between the rich and poor has widened. 
and even the middle class are being squeezed and almost disappearing because you have this huge void in terms of where the the money is going and you have the one percent who are possibly just making I, I i couldn't put a percentage on it but obviously it's a, a large amount and whether that's being distributed whether people see that as fair uh obviously those people who work a hartford and invent and take risks hopefully get rewarded they obviously make a lot of losses as well but i i'm not sure if this is something that's a symptom or a cause of the the type of economy that we're living in? Well, I think it's a reflection of our philosophy. Okay, It's a reflection of the way people are thinking or making decisions and the values that they're putting on, the kinds of transactions that they're doing. Um, we can think of individuals who are talented uh, should be able to you know, keep all of their products, Okay, all of the wealth that they create. But another way to think about it is that it sucks all of the wealth out of the society and ties it up. Uh, because, you know, I mean, a rich person can only buy so many cars, <laughs> as opposed to if, if the money flows back into the economy, that generates that, that, you know, that's the engine that keeps things going. Now, the problem is, again, from a psychological perspective, is this idea of, of entitlement that comes from status driving and, and status seeking. So this is something that my colleagues and I have, uh, you know, have been looking at. And, uh, we started off with just a very simple, we wanted a very simple transaction that would be something, rather than looking at college sophomores all the time, we wanted something that was quick and that you could ask the man in the street and that we could do across cultures, that that would be something that someone would be familiar with. And so what we came up with was a very simple transaction, which is a carpooling arrangement. And the arrangement is that I'll drive if you pay for the gas. And then we show people these ledgers that uh, show, um, you know, the dates that somebody drove and whether the person paid for the gasoline. And the person who's supposed to be the, for the gasoline either is complying 100% of the time, 75% of the time, 50% of the time, or only 25% of the time. And then we ask them a number of different questions. Would you be willing to continue this arrangement? How fair do you think you were treated? Um, how much would this, uh, how much value do you think this, uh, this arrangement had, this agreement had for you? Uh, how much cost did it impose on you? And so on. And the other twist that we put in there was that we asked people to adopt uh, different perspectives. And the one I want to talk about is they adopted a perspective where they were a, an executive, a boss of a company, or they were an employee in, in the company. And we varied whether the boss or the employee made who made more money. So there were uh, conditions in which the employee made more money because the employee was a salesperson and they had enormous bonuses, uh, sales commissions. Okay, so we, we we counterbalanced all of this, and then what we found, which surprised us actually, was noblesse oblige, which is that the people who adopted the boss perspective were far more generous. They were more. Um, willing to continue the parts uh, the uh, uh, the arrangement despite uh, marked departures from reciprocity they felt they had been treated more fairly they felt less animosity towards their cheating partners they believed they got a better deal because they bore less cost regardless of how much they made and they felt that they received higher value from the arrangement this surprised us and it, we found that it was a very strong norm, and other people have since found similar things using different measures. 
So this noblesse oblige seemed to be a cross-cultural norm and seems to be something that uh, functions to honestly signal basically character and quality, okay, through costly displays. So one of the things that we looked at, uh, started investigating literature, is that why would this be the case, okay? And what we found and what other people are beginning to find is that it matters how people think status has been acquired. So in our case, the boss, presumably, this is somebody who rose, the people assume that people, this is someone who rose to the ranks uh, through prestige. That is, they've, they've done well. They performed well for the company. And as a result, they've, they've been given uh, a higher status position. And so when they're in that position, they behave more generously towards, towards their employees, not necessarily towards people who don't, who, who don't work in that same organization. But the other interesting thing, the more interesting thing, is that what happens when people think that status is acquired in other ways? So there's some very interesting work done on, in uh, experimental economics. So again, using these ultimatum games or dictator games, okay, and the... Who gets to be dictator? Who gets to be the proposer? The researcher determines that and says either, we're going to toss a coin, okay? So it's completely random. Under those circumstances, you find what I just described, okay, which is kind of a pretty close to 50-50 split, okay? Now, suppose instead I say, I'm going to give you a trivia test, okay? And whoever gets the highest score gets to be the, the dictator or the proposer. Under those circumstances, the dictator or proposer behaves far more exploitatively. They feel they're superior. They've earned this because of their superiority, because of their better performance. And now they offer significantly less to their partners. And what's even more interesting is that the responders, okay, will are satisfied with less money when they know they're facing somebody who ranked, who got a higher score than them on a trivia test. That's quite interesting, isn't it? But it makes sense as well. Uh huh. Now, on the other hand, if it's a case where the proposer dictator were assigned on the basis of prestige, okay, you don't get those effects. The, the, this, you get this kind of noblesse oblige effect where people who are, are, are put in this position because they're worried about their reputation or they have a reputation of, um, I'm trying to think of, I'm, I'm blanking right now on the, on, um, there's some studies that were done using a different methodology that we use. But the bottom line is, I forget exactly at the moment what they did, but the bottom line is that it matters how status is believed to have been achieved. When people think that they've earned it because they're better, smarter, harder working, more clever, whatever it is, they tend, we tend to behave exploitatively towards those lesser mortars, mortals around us. When we think it's the luck of the draw, we tend to be more, treat them more fairly. And when we think it's a matter of prestige, okay, that uh, we have, uh, we've been good guys and we've gotten where we are because we've contributed to our company's bottom line or whatever it is or to the, the, to the greater good, uh, of the society, we behave generously towards others. So when you're going to predict what someone is going to do in a transaction, in an economic transaction, you have to take these kinds of things into account. People are measuring each other in terms of reputation, in terms of status, and they're going to make decisions that may depart from these set theoretic uh, predictions, but it's not necessarily irrational choices. 
Okay, they're, they're choices that may, in the long run, turn out to be beneficial to themselves, okay, primarily, and also uh, to others. And they often have very deep evolutionary roots. They were the things that allowed us to, to survive. Would you know if that study was done for, say, age, gender, and looks, if you want to put it that way? Yeah, there's, there's been some work done on that. And yeah, especially, you know, um, guys and pretty women. Uh, that's that's easy to get, you know. I mean, you can, you could predict that. Your grandmother could predict, <laughs> could predict the results. Yeah, even at some level, there's always the the hope or the uh, expectation that if uh, if a guy is nice to a pretty girl, that she's going to reciprocate sexually. So yeah, that that's that's been done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't mean it in terms of sexually, but I meant it in terms of a game where you might share out the money if there was a confrontation between one and the other. Yeah. <laughs> but look, at, yeah, it does happen in the, the social scene as well. Yeah, there's there's uh, there's definitely sex differences um, in these in these things as well. Women tend to be a little bit more egalitarian, um, a little bit more pro-social, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're nicer because we can be pretty nasty <laughs> when we're competing with other women. But nonetheless, there are some profiles that are a little bit more female and a little bit more male, uh, prototypically female and male. Um, which actually brings me to the a topic that I'd also like to discuss, um, which is women's traditional labor yes. in economic uh, models. And can we just dive into that right now? Or Definitely. I was leading into it and I was just going to ask you about the equality and mm-hmm. that type of thing. So yeah. fire away. Okay. Uh, um, so, as you know, uh, women's traditional labor is not counted in uh, traditional economic models. And, in fact, people, uh, one of the sort of prevailing thoughts was that, you know, we need to free women from childcare burdens so that we women could become productive members of society, where productive is uh, defined in terms of contribution to gross domestic product. And this was an idea that was enthusiastically embraced by second wave feminism. It was also enthusiastically embraced in uh, certain collectivist societies, such as the Israeli kibbutzim. Okay, now this claim amounts to saying that traditional women's work holds no economic value. That is, the work that women have done traditionally in child rearing in particular um, doesn't actually advance anything to a country's bottom line. And that is astonishing to think that it has no value when one considers that a substantial portion of our paychecks go to childcare expenses these days. So according to the National Association of Child Care Resource and Referral Agencies, the average cost of, of daycare center-based uh, uh, daycare in the United States is about $12,000 annually per child. Even Cheryl Sandberg points this out in Lean In, that child care costs have risen twice as fast as the median income over the past decade. And in fact, the cost for two children to go to daycare in the U.S. is greater than the annual medium rent in every state. Okay. If we add in the other things that women traditionally did, like cooking, cleaning, uh, laundry, and so on, Investopedia um, uh, 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 did an estimate, and they came up with a value of $96,000. Lovely. Okay. Now, when we uh, decided that uh, we needed to you know, outsource childcare so that women could be more productively involved in the economy, 
what that that led also to assortative mating. So um, people, you know, uh, who have executive positions tend to marry other executives, and middle class middle managers tend to marry uh, middle other middle managed people managers, and and so on. And one of the unpredicted and or unforeseen impacts on the entire economy was the housing market, because the first thing people do is when they have more money is buy more house. So according to uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren and her co-author, Amelia Warren-Tagey, today's two-income family earns 75% more money than its single-income counterpart of a generation ago. 75% more money comes into our homes than, uh, than they did when there was only the dad working and the mom was staying home. But we actually have less discretionary income once the monthly bills are paid because one, there's the, the what I just mentioned, the childcare costs, but two, the higher family incomes triggered a ferocious bidding war for housing and education among the middle class. So housing and tuition prices skyrocketed. And now that means that there has to be two wage earners in the family because it's virtually impossible to, to maintain a middle class existence if you don't. So that's, uh, that was a uh, kind of surprising outcome that n- nobody saw but should have seen. And we know that the subprime mortgage crisis, it, is part, it was the mechanism by which the economy fell in 2008. Okay, so, and what about, um, again, this work that women do, okay, have traditionally done? Well, there's increasing recognition that the first few years of life, uh, of a child's life, are particularly sensitive in the process of development, it lays a foundation for cognitive functioning, behavioral and social and self-regulatory capacities and physical health. So what happens then um, now if we're outsourcing this? Well, just to give you some idea of how important that early childhood um, experience is, In 1986, in a few of the poorest neighborhoods in Kingston, Jamaica, a team of researchers from the University of West Indies divided um, families from 129 infants and toddlers into three groups. The first group received hour-long home visits once a week from a trained researcher who encouraged parents to spend more time playing actively with their children, reading them books and singing songs and so on. A second group just received a kilogram of, of a milk based nutritional supplement each week, and a third uh, group was just the control group, nothing happened. Okay, Um, this went on for two years, but the researchers have been following the children ever since 1986. And the results showed that children whose parents were counseled to play more with them did better throughout childhood on tests of IQ, aggressive behavior, and self-control. And today, as adults, they earn on average 25% more per year than the children whose parents didn't receive the home visits. Um, in terms of, uh, excuse me, other interventions, um, uh, in investments in early childhood education <coughs> has been found to, uh, to lead to large economic savings. The Child Par- uh, Parent Center Program, which has served over 100,000 Chicago kids uh, here not too far from where I live, um, is estimated that, they, that money spent will prevent an estimated 13,000 juvenile delinquent, uh, violent juvenile crimes, and that it's, pay, it's saving taxpayers, victims, and participants over $7 for every dollar invested. 
There was a study released by Vanderbilt University that estimates the potential benefits in in saving a high-risk youth from becoming a career criminal to be somewhere between $1 and $1.3 million. They're fascinating statistics, really, because I've had guests previously on the show. um, One especially uh, comes to mind, Shosanna Grosbard, who spoke out about the whole idea that GDP doesn't take into consideration uh, this women's traditional labour at home, but it's vitally important. And I know in Scandinavian countries, it's encouraged that men take on or take take some parental leave. But I'm not sure whether they take that at all. I think they even can get up to 12 months. And this, I, don't. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think they do, to be honest. I think there could be other reasons why they might not want to do that. And I, I'm not sure if it affects the, the income that comes in. Yeah, I have actually some uh, little bit of information on that. Um, one thing I will say is that there was a recent essay in The Economist in which they called for a new metric called GDP plus that would include unpaid work in the home. Okay. In terms of um, gross domestic product, but um, in terms of Scandinavian countries, yeah, they do provide generous family leave policies for workers that overwhelmingly it's mothers who choose to take advantage of the policies. Almost 50% of Norwegian women, for example, work part-time when their children are young. And the problem is that it makes it difficult for them to resolve their competing desires for high salary and part-time work because there is no such thing as a part-time professional, okay? Uh, not in the business world. If you want to do that, you, you are now going into, uh, you know, a, <clears throat> you're self-employed or you're an entrepreneur if you want to cut back on your hours. Uh, but in the, in the traditional business place, okay, uh, so if, for example, if you hang out your shingle as a doctor and you decide that you want to cut down a number of patients you treat, you're welcome to do that. And nobody thinks that suddenly you no longer know how to practice medicine and, you know, keeps you away from decision making. But if you work for a company, especially a large corporation, and you say that you want to go part time, <coughs> the first thing that happens is that they take you as far away from decision making as possible. And that pays out in terms of a reduction in salary. Denise, can I ask you about an email that you recently sent to me, actually, in response to a podcast episode that I had done with Julian Elson? Yes. Um, so, well, I want to just uh, mention that, okay. <laughs> there is a good deal of work that has been done by neuroscientists uh, now looking at, uh, since we can image the mind of a, a living, living, breathing, conscious human being doing something, right, making a decision or, or, or whatever, um, it's afforded us an opportunity to actually get collect a lot of data on different brains and what, how the human brain solves problems or makes vision decisions or, uh, or whatever. And one of the things that's coming out of that is that there are uh, small but reliable differences between men and women, uh, both structurally as well as functionally. And they've been publishing these data showing that, you know, (laughs) complete with, you know, full color uh, pictures of the brain uh, as it's as it's doing this and doing that. And, you know, featuring, you know, pointing to the areas that, you know, women recruit these areas, men recruit these areas and so on. This is considered politically incorrect. okay? and as a result, people who who find this kind of work offensive refer to it as neurosexism, which is how Dr. Nelson was referring to it. Okay, now, as I mentioned in the email, okay, again, we have to think about humans not in terms of the products 
uh, of the way they are today. But we have to look at our, ourselves as evolutionary beings. We have to look at ourselves with very long evolutionary histories. And quite simply, it would be astonishing to find no sex differences in, in psychological or behavioral traits because humans are mammals, and that means females bear far greater reproductive costs than males. We are the ones who get pregnant. We lactate. We go through childbirth. And in almost all cultures, women are actively involved, are, are, are singularly important in the survival of young children, <clears throat> particularly toddlers. Uh, so if the mother dies, it's, it, the survival of children younger than four is pretty dicey. Now, humans are also characterized by extraordinarily project, protracted childhoods. We spend more time as pre-reproductives, that is, we spend more time as juveniles, right, non-adults, than any other species, any other species, okay? So a dog is fully grown by one or two, a horse by five, okay? <clears throat> humans are, are not reproductively viable until um, they're teens, and our brains don't finish developing until our early 20s. That is a very long time to spend on being incapable, uh, you know, being dependent on your parents. That means that humans, more than any other species, require an enormous amount of investment during childhood in order to arrive at adulthood. And much of this falls on parents, and most particularly most of this falls on the, has fallen on mothers. Okay, so that means that well, over evolutionary time, these evolutionary pressures have shaped aspects of our cognition along sexually divergent lines, and these include differences in risk-taking. Since our bodies are responsible for producing these young, okay, we have a finite number of eggs, and when they're gone, they're gone, and the pregnancy takes place, gestation takes place in our own bodies. And when we have young children around us, if anything happens to us, they are likely to die. We are going to be conservative with respect to taking risks. That just makes sense. That is how we invest in our reproduction. Men do not face those same kinds of challenges. Okay? <clears throat> so to dismiss... Um, these differences as simply, you know, like what that Scandinavian women, despite the fact that there are these generous family leave policies and men can take them as well, and yet it is the women who prefer to stay home or to go part-time in order to strike this mythical and magical work-life balance, to simply dismiss those as due to culture, due to society putting pressure on women to think this way is ridiculous, okay? These results look paradoxical unless you look at humans through the lens of evolutionary history. It's not just that women feel pressured to stay home, okay, or to go part-time, or to avoid jobs that take them away from home too much when their children are young. And I'm going to continue saying this, when their children are young, okay? This makes good biological sense, and it should be accommodated, uh, because of the huge payoffs that we as a society reap from the work that they do. Now, once the kids are in school and they've become more independent, then the game changes, right? Then we want to swing back into our careers full time. The thing is, you can't hit the pause button. If you hit the pause button, you are put into 
the the pink collar ghetto. Okay, and this is true of men too who decide to to be stay at home dads or go part time because they want to take care of the kids. The workplace is ruthless, <laughs> ruthlessly um, uh, uh, punitive towards people who make who decide to invest in their own reproduction as opposed to the company's bottom line. And it's short-sighted. We're talking about short-sighted, high payoffs versus long-term. If you don't allow, particularly the middle class, time to reproduce, if you don't give them an opportunity to hit the pause button without penalizing them when they try to come back, then you're going to have a reduction in, say, the number of kids who are born to middle-class parents. You're going to have you're just going to have a lot of problems, right? You're going to have um, long-term problems for the entire for the entire economy and for the for the society. So there <clears throat> there has to be a recognition <clears throat> that the stuff that we wrote off is unimportant because women did it is not unimportant at all. It's really important. There's a, a penalty as well for these people who stay at home in terms of going back to work. What I, what I mean by penalty is that you may not be able to continue in the position that you once were at, both uh, as a, say, a, a position within the company or even right. financially. You, you know, that catch up. And as you mentioned earlier on, $96,000 is the amount that is put on the amount of work that women, financially what the women should receive for the work that they do at home. But you know they're they're not treated in terms of okay they may get a maternity benefit and then uh, they lose out if they decide to take a, a time out of work to help rear the children because in Ireland you get your um, number of months and the women are expected right. back to work they're highly dependent mm-hmm. on the grandparents if they mm-hmm. have grandparents and then you know a lot of I, I'm not sure like for example in Ireland we are going to have a paternity leave for men to take once and that's going to be introduced quite shortly in order to take time off work in order to help at home and the, the thinking here and i spoke to a few people is there's no way i'm taking that i'm going back to work after my mm-hmm. one or two weeks yeah well this is uh this is a problem um if you i don't know if you if you if there's a show called shark tank uh for example here in the united states where um young uh, where entrepreneurs come in and they try to persuade these investors to give them money for their uh the new business that they're starting up or you know new product that they've developed and it is quite shocking, actually, how many come on um, and have decided to take that route of entrepreneurship um, because they want to have a family and they don't see and they want to be involved in their young children's daily lives and they don't see how to do that and <clears throat> and work a regular job. Now it's kind of foolish to think that entrepreneurship is going to take less hours than a traditional job, but this is how they start off. Okay, this is this is what they plan to do because they think that they will have at least more flexible hours. Okay, so yes, I you know I think this is the discussion. I think second wave feminists threw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, third wave feminists seem to be mostly in pro- academic programs that I don't know are, are busy demonizing men. I, I don't quite understand what they think they're doing. Um, but I think fourth wave feminists, this is their job. This is their task now. They need to they need to reclaim their rights. Uh, to be parents, for <clears throat> to have investment in uh, in their reproductive effort, and for certain rules to be result, uh, relaxed. You know, some people say, "Well, you know, I'm sorry, but if you're going to stay home or go part time, you know, for five or you know, or even maybe ten years, what makes you, you know, of course, the person who stayed in the workplace that you know during those years is going to end up making more money. 
And I don't think there's any question there. I mean, I, I, yeah, if you make that decision, you are going to have a, a hit in income, okay? If, and if you can handle it, uh, maybe, you know, some people want to do it if they feel they can handle that, they can handle that hit. The question, though, to me, first and foremost, what happens when they try to come back? Because the first thing out of people's mouths is, oh, they'll be so far behind, there's no way they could possibly catch up. There's no proof that that's the case. Okay, that's the, there's just absolutely no proof that that's the case. And in fact, there's, you know, there's ample evidence, I think, now from people who have done this uh, and come back that they can, you know, they, they get up to speed pretty quickly. Okay, you, your, your brain doesn't uh, doesn't atrophy when, when you're busy being a parent. So I, I think penalizing people and saying it, it's an attitude that you put your own um, personal preferences, your family first over career. And for that, we will never forgive you is quite is 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 ninety percent of the problem. Most people I think will be willing to take the, the hidden income um lifetime earnings if you know as a trade off in order to have more time to spend with their children. What they don't want is to be sidelined into a lower ranking job, a a job with with without any decision making responsibility. Uh, that now were before they were an executive or they were a professor or they were a, a doctor or a lawyer. Now they are support staff and they can never get out of those roles because they stepped out of that of the kind of position um, <clears throat> at some point in their career. That, I think, is is unfair. There's, there shouldn't be a prejudice towards allowing someone who has an excellent track record before they took a few years off. There should be no prejudice to rehiring them when they when they come back, when they try to swing back into the workforce. In fact, you should look at that and say, well, they have a track record and I'm going to go on the basis of their track record. And for the last five years, they've been doing something that benefits the society, which is that they've been, you know, investing in, in producing the next generation of, uh, of workers and, and taxpayers. <clears throat> they should be commended for that, not penalized for that. Totally agree. Yeah, and it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt if uh, you know uh, governments also want to provide a little bit of of investment in uh, early you know in uh, in young families as well. Exactly, Denise. Uh, I, I'd love to talk more, but um, I didn't realize how how, how long we're gone because I have a couple of more questions here. Um, but I I guess we wrap up then. I think if you're okay with that, Denise. Yes. No. That that makes sense. Yeah. I I would love to talk to you about your recent book. But I put the links on my show notes page at economicrockstar.com forward slash Denise Cummins. And you have four books that I think would be very be- beneficial to anyone, economics or non-economics. Um, your latest one, Good Thinking, Seven Powerful Ideas That Influence the Way We Think. And one that really uh, jumps out at me is The Evolution of the Mind, or sorry, The Evolution of Mind. And it's something that we kind of t- discussed in this type of in this conversation. But Denise, do you have any other recommended books that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, wow. Uh, okay, that came out of the blue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or what's the latest one that you've read? Uh, let's see. We'll see. The, the thing is, I'm retired, so I'm mostly reading novels now. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to know. Uh, yeah, I will say, okay, well, this this is something just a personal interest of mine, but uh, Franz Duval's recent book on Are We Smart Enough to uh, to Know How Smart Animals Are is quite a delightful book, and it's quite an eye-opener because um, he has an interest not just in, in the way um, – uh, primates think, uh, non-human primates think, but the way human primates think. And I think it would be a real eye-opener to someone who hasn't read anything like that 
uh, to see evolved functions, what intelligence is for, okay, <clears throat> how intelligence um, allows an individual to uh, to survive it, both uh, physical and social uh, challenges. So I would recommend that one. And I'll put that on the link as well on all the resources mentioned in this episode. Denise, thank you so much for joining me in Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share again with our listeners where they can find you. They can find me at denisecummins.com. And you can find all the links and resources mentioned by Denise in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash Denise Cummins. Denise, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. Okay, thank you very much. All the best, Denise. Thanks a million. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.